Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. Second episode, season five. Are we calling the first episode just you and I talking, episode one, or is that an RV? Still counts. We didn't say RV during it. We should bring back that nomenclature. Mm, I'm changing it. Well, it's the second episode, first interview, and we're very excited because our guest is a nuclear scientist. <laughs> Seriously impressive nuclear scientist. Yeah. Actually, a uh, nuclear engineer, two master's degrees, but Jasmine Diab spent her first career in the military countering chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and explosive threats. CBRNE. Yeah. Yep. Um... She commanded at all levels, mm. including the Special Operations Engineer Regiment, 800 soldiers in that regiment, which is part of what command, Ben? Special Ops, including the title. So uh, including time on combat operations, no stranger to tragedy and trauma. She was awarded a Conspicuous Service Cross for her exceptional leadership. Mm. She, since leaving Defence, co-founded the Defence Entrepreneurs Forum Australia, mm-hmm. encouraging bottom-up conceptual innovation. And she's also the president of Women in Nuclear Australia. We in Oz. And not being comfortable with just doing those things. She's the Oceania representative of the Women in Nuclear Global Executive. Yeah, I met Jazz in uniform and, in fact, her reputation had preceded her and not just because she's a rock star and a pioneer. I mean, all of those attributes for any human uh, or those accolades, rather, for any human are are incredibly impressive. But when you overlay the fact that she was very much at the cutting edge of doing that as a female in the Australian military, um, super impressive. But what I think is extra impressive about Jazz is that She's her own person. She's not, um, you know, a a G.I. Jane sort of archetype or any of that sort of stuff. She is a really uh, self-described quirky, self-described weirdo, self-described nerd, but just a beautiful human that um, very much doesn't feel she needs to compromise her individuality um, in doing all of that amazing stuff and and has brought uh, herself to to all of those roles in, in such a cool way. And we're going to talk with Jazz about some of her creative pursuits, including what I think is a really funky sort of creative slash mindfulness activity. But it's interesting to note that Jazz has also exhibited some of her artwork, Mm. in particular at um, last year's ANVAM Festival of Veteran Arts. Now, ANVAM, of course, stands for the Australian National Veterans Art Museum. And we were recently chatting with Mark Johnson, who's the chairman and director of ANVAM, um, about their upcoming Festival of Veteran Arts this March. So um, a great opportunity if you're in the Melbourne region to be able to actually go in and see it. But otherwise, please check it out. 
It is at anvam.org.au. Some really cool stuff coming up in this particular festival, but in general, they're doing some amazing stuff across the spectrum of arts in the veteran space. We might also talk about why it's important for you to be creative in order to build resilience. Mm, I have heard us bang on about that before, Mm. and I think it's a a really good aspect of resiliency-ness. Lovely discussion with Jazz on leadership and her challenges in leadership with leadership. Also, some great chat on spray painting, including Mm -hmm. your beautiful mural here, and what she does for her, which is... Crotchet. Crochet. (laughs) I think I'm pronouncing that right. So you'd think, you know, she's super smart, she's a nerd, academic, engineer, scientist, unflappable, dynamic, Mm. you know, you couldn't really bother this human being. And and, and an EOD tech, an explosive ordnance disposal Mm. tech, which we'll talk with her a little bit about, but that is not a role, bomb bomb diffusing is not a role for the faint-hearted or the easily flappable. Mm. You would therefore perhaps define her as being resilient. Absolutely. And she has had some serious challenges in her life. We'll talk about the loss of her sister Mm. and the birth of her first beautiful baby, Zoe. Yeah. Um, Some really, really inspiring thoughts from Jazz on, uh, on those matters. I'm looking forward to it. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Has it been always? You've done a few without me, haven't you? Never. Oh, you did that Hurt Island one. That <laughs> <laughs> That's true, <laughs> Incredibly actually. coincidentally, um, I said about three words, and I think it's our highest rating. <laughs> I'm not drawing correlation between those. In fact, because we had multiple guests on the Hurt Island, you didn't get a microphone, which is why we didn't hear from you. I remember just sitting in the corner like a naughty schoolboy. <laughs> you sketched. Very, yeah, I did sketch, actually. That, yeah. that was quite enjoyable. But anyway, enough about Hurt Island, podcast. you not getting a microphone and sketching. Yep, 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 yep. A big welcome to... Jazz Diab. Hi. Welcome to the podcast, Jazz. Thank you. It's uh, fun to be locked in a tiny space with uh, you guys. Well, that's that's the trivia question that we need to open with. What did this tiny space used to be? Because uh, well, it wasn't always a podcast studio. I feel like that's unfair because you kind of already told me and you might not have remembered that you mm. told me. Mm. I think it used to be like a shower room or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if we can record in here with Mark Wales... Yeah. The gigantuan. Yeah. Big head. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was in, that was off season, wasn't it? <laughs> like we, we complained in the last episode, the season opener, about how hot this is. And Jazz, we, we, should, we should get straight to the point because one of us is going to be fainting within about <laughs> half an hour because this, this will get humming. Well, as, as you know, as a podcasting guru, you can't have fans or air conditioners in podcast rooms, certainly not with these types of microphones, way too sensitive. Speaking sensitive... <laughs> which you are not, Jess. I'm a little flower petal. That's, that's one of the shittiest segues. <laughs> now, special welcome to the podcast studio. It used to be a shower room. Um, tell us a bit about yourself. Tell well, us a bit about your upbringing. Yeah, so um, I think I have lived many lives in the one life, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which might answer to my quirkiness. Um, but I... Grew up eldest of five kids, Mm. um, pretty 
pretty average childhood, I guess. Um, my siblings are probably some of my closest friends. Unfortunately, I lost one of my sisters to suicide over 10 years ago, and that hit us pretty hard as a family. But we are still quite a close-knit mm-hmm. crew, and um, suicide in a family really teaches you a lot about mm. life and resilience. Yeah, I don't doubt it. And, and maybe if you're comfortable, we might, might come back to that. Yeah. What, what is the age spirit? So eldest of five. Yeah, so there's myself, there's my sister Sarah, who's two years younger than me, and she's phenomenal in the medical research community. She yeah. is the real rock star. Um, that sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> Having a younger sibling that's much yeah. better than you. Yeah. Yeah. Prettier, smarter, not, not happening in the Curtis family. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Simon. <laughs> oh, yeah, the, but the bar is low. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Curtis Glenn genetics. <laughs> Thanks, Mum. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Some somewhere the genetics got washed down the plug hole. Lesser of equals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Which form of STD do you want? <laughs> we don't have STDs in the Curtis household. Um, what sort of medical research? Um, so she's doing research that's. Uh, She's going to kill me for butchering all of this. Mm-hmm. She does research in the cardiac space. So she started out doing stuff that was looking at an artificial heart, like a total artificial heart. Wow. Um, but is now working with a company that um, puts a device in through the arteries. And I have zero medical training. Like mm-hmm. I'd fail a first aid course. Mm-hmm. That's how medical I am. Um, it reduces pressure on the heart to allow it to recover. Um, and this device is doing great things across America. But because Australia doesn't really invest in its medical research, mm. she lives in America and I only get to see her via FaceTime, which breaks my heart. But, mm. yeah. Um, are pig's hearts still a thing? Oh, I, I'm not sure. Apparently, you, you apparently now, pigs with, have yeah. them. With, with, <laughs> within like this booth, you are the, the <laughs> cardiac <laughs> translate expert. Didn't they do that? <laughs> Didn't they put a pig's heart in someone and then it kind of worked? For, anyway. No one here knows. Gary, yeah. <laughs> I strike that question. Isn't your brother a doctor? <laughs> yes. yeah, Dan, Dan, email email in Dan at yeah. debrief at unforgivingsixty.com yeah. and let us know if let pig's know. heart is still yeah. with you. Yeah. Okay. So they're coming back. So, uh, Yeah, so there's me, there's Sarah, there's my Sarah. brother, Kareem, who started out in the army like me, um, but now he's a bit of an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a bit of a clever business cookie. Mm-hmm. And, then and my, he's been doing things in and out of the Middle East? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he... He left Army and went and did some security work and then got into telecommunications Mm. and is now um, running a business out of Africa that's trying to get more communications to more people, um, which is really exciting for him. Mm. Um, And surprised me that he was a business dude. Mm. I guess when you picture your siblings, they're the little rat bags you grow up with. So he's actually pretty cool. Um, And then my younger two siblings, there's a big gap there. There's Hannah, who unfortunately died of suicide. Um, when she was oh, 19, 20. Mm. And then the baby, Eliza, who in my eyes is always a baby, but uh, I think turns 30 this year. Hmm. Hey, I just released your age, Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But it's, it's kind of cool. So my wife is the eldest of five and same sort of thing, like decent age gap such that when she was a kind of early teenager, she the youngest was a baby. Oh, yeah. And so there's almost a maternal part quasi parental mm-hmm. sort of relationship yeah and it's, it's come sort of this wonderful full circle such that that youngest sister is now cool aunt to our yep. kids and it's yep. this really cool i don't know circle you know the, the wide family sort of raising kids type thing but yeah is, is there a similar sort of thing oh definitely yeah 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 um my siblings are what keep me sane 
right? Mm. My parents, yeah, they're all right, I guess. <laughs> Hi, mum and dad. <laughs> <laughs> but it's my siblings that I rely upon mostly for a lot of support. Yeah. Mm. And that yeah. Um, certainly I'm the same with Dan as... We often joke about my social layer and resilient shield parlance is not strong. Um, but I do have a really good relationship with my brother Dan and that unconditionality of it. You know, yeah. there's, there's no secrets. There's, no. there's such that depth of knowledge and trust. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's cool. It's amazing. You could say the dumbest thing and they'll still love you at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> they'll still yeah. pick up the phone. <laughs> yeah. No, I like Yeah. And Diab, where's Diab from? My dad's Egyptian. Okay. Yeah, so he migrated over as a young young guy in his 20s, left his family. I think he was the youngest of eight or something mm-hmm. and came over on his own. Yeah. Can you tell us, and you have told me before, the the um, neat story of your, your parents, which is kind of sweet. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so my mum's from Finland. Her family migrated over, um, I'm going to say in the... Oh, I don't even know when they migrated over. But um, my mum was studying at nursing school Mm -hmm. in Sydney. My dad was a chef at a restaurant across the road. And he kept seeing this young blonde woman come in every day for lunch with her friends. And he built up the courage and asked her out and... Uh, she ended up standing him up for their first date. <laughs> Deliberately? <laughs> was, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> uh, he was quite persistent in what they've been married for over 40 years now and they're still together. That's so, really it's, cool. yeah, it's really lovely. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, genetics or epigenetics, dad's a cook. Can you cook? How's your cooking? Uh, my cooking's okay. I'm heavily reliant on <laughs> recipes. <laughs> genetics. <laughs> what, what is the cooking gene? You, you never know. know. <laughs> you don't want, we up wouldn't know. food, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know how there's to a cook. Strong, there's a strong genetic link between my father's cooking ability and mine. What, zero? <laughs> zero. He was hopeless. Good toasty. Ham, cheese, toasty on Sunday. That was my mum's night off and dad always cooked ham, oh, cheese, toasty. Terrible. She was patient. Um, where, geographically, where did you grow up? So uh, we grew up, I was born in Sydney. Don't tell the state of origin team I said that because I go for Queensland because mm. I actually went to school up in Queensland on the Gold Coast. Okay. And that's what I consider my hometown now. Okay. I spent most of my time there. What What was happening on the Gold Coast for the family for you to be going to school there? Uh, good question. I think they needed a sea change. They needed to get out of Sydney. The hustle and bustle was a bit too much. Um, looking for a bit more of a relaxed lifestyle mm. and that, that got us up to... Goldie, mm. which is a bit more relaxed. Cost of living is a bit better. Mm-hmm. And what yeah. school? I went to Merrimack State High School. Uh, anyone who's a Gold Coast fan, it's right near Pacific Fair, okay. where yeah. I yep. uh, potentially wagged a couple of days. <laughs> yep. It has not resulted in any issues, I think, long term. So hang on. You <laughs> wagged a couple of days, but you're a self-professed nerd. I'm a big nerd, yeah. Uh, were you nerdy back then? Uh, I was a closet nerd back then okay. because it wasn't cool to be nerdy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Whereas I think it is now. Or, or oh, getting yeah. cooler. Yeah, 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 it is getting cooler. There are some amazing kids out there who are really spooking some great science research. And they're all still in school. Mm. I'm like, that's amazing. I wish Did, it was cool to be a nerd. So nerd, self-professed mm. from day one? Yeah, pretty much. Like I uh, left school and I had two options. I was either going to the army, going to the Defence Academy to study science because mm-hmm. I love science. Uh, or I was going to the Queensland School of Performing Arts to be an actor. All right. Yeah. 
<laughs> wow. And let's stay with the acting for a second. Mm. Is that something that you did growing up? Or yeah, was I loved it? it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And, and how and where did that all come about? Uh, what, were you... I was one of those drama kids. Mm-hmm. So every spare opportunity, I was standing up on something, doing some sort of soliloquy, making sure people mm-hmm. listen to what I say. Um They'd probably tell me to shut up, but um, <laughs> I loved it. I loved doing plays and musicals, and I guess it gave you a different kind of family vibe mm-hmm. for a short period of time. Anything popular in the plays and musicals, anything we would know? I did uh, Hooray for Hollywood, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. It's not, actually, it's really daddy. Bye bye, Bird. Also, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you can see, that's why I didn't go and study acting. <laughs> I'm, I'm jumping around a bit here, and as we said in the intro, you, you obviously had a, a, a very impressive career in defence. But I've got mm. this little pet theory that certainly in defence, as an officer, you can get kind of 80, maybe 90% of the way by being able to speak in public confidently and by being physically fit. Yeah. Did you see your acting and your ability to speak and that sort of stuff as a strong plus in your defence career? Yeah, definitely. Especially because as a junior officer, I wasn't super fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a natural runner. I'm a rugby forward. I'm short. I'm <laughs> stocky. I can lift heavy things. But get me to run a marathon and I'll be like, hey, is there a car? Or <laughs> Unless there's a wine one, Tim, I'll do that one. <laughs> oh, we'd, be, we'd be excellent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my confidence in public speaking Mm. was a real strength of mine and I was able to almost fake it Um, and like that's something I carried throughout my whole career and I still do that now yeah I I love that and the more we look at leaders um, you know there's there's some great kind of Amy Cuddy talks a lot about fake it till you make it as does um, uh, Herminia Ibarra some some really good uh, leadership scholars and we also love the idea of authenticity and, and there's a dissonance between faking it and being authentic. But yeah. I, I kind of, and I, I often use the term the theatre of leadership, that, that, you know, there is, you are to an extent playing a role and, and it's a continuum. You don't want to be inauthentic, but you also want to be the best version of yourself. Yeah, like mm. you can't inspire people to do things, especially from a military context, to mm. do some really demanding tasks if you're really nervous and really shy and don't really want to tell them to do it. Mm. They'll see right through it and they'll fail ultimately the mission you're trying to give them. And so I think that that authenticity is still there but in a different form. Mm. Yeah, Actually, that's a really beautiful... Like, I think you have to believe in what you're doing. Yeah. Military or otherwise, you know, you can probably manage without... You know, be a manager without believing in your, your organisational's goal. But I don't think you can lead. You can't can't do that inspiration motivation. Yeah. But there is still that element of, okay, yep, you've got to have that authentic belief, but you've also got to sell it. Yeah. You've also got to people to look and and think, yes, I'm I'm getting on board with that or I'm inspired by that. Yeah. Yeah, and they've got to trust you've got their back. Because if you're just telling them to do something and they don't believe you think it's worthwhile doing, Mm. they're going to go, well, you're just going to throw me under the bus if it all goes pear-shaped. And I've seen that so many times. I've had a few bosses that were like that. I'm like... Why am I going to follow you? Yeah, like, yeah. You're just going to blame me for this stuffing up. They espouse all the good mantras. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk about the transferability of acting and speaking into military leadership and leadership yep. more generally. Maybe a question for both of you practitioners and theorists. 
Um, the speaking bit's obvious, mm. but when is the acting bit okay? Mm. I think when it's when you're still grappling with the mm. issue yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a few really challenging decisions I've had to make, and I've been grappling with how I how I give that information to a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the acting had come in because I need to show them that I believe in this decision even though I'm still processing that. Mm -hmm. And I know from a textbook perspective I'm making the right decision. I just know personally I need to work through it. I'd I'd absolutely second that. And I think it's those ones where... I think it's those ones where... You've, you've, you've done that initial process. The decision's not a moral or legal, you know, but maybe you've got reservations or you've repercharged to the boss with a different way and yeah. they've said, no, we're doing it this way. Again, it's not a moral or legal. It's not exactly the way you do it and you've, you've got to sell that. Yeah. Um, the other one is, and maybe this is more peculiarly military, but is when you're kind of scared yourself. Oh, like yeah, yeah. Physically, yeah. you know, you, you're worried about... And, and not even scared for yourself, but scared that people may get hurt or injured as a result of what you're doing. That, yep. you know, that carries a lot of weight. Definitely. But you, you can't, you know, okay, we're, we're going to do this assault and come from the left flank and I've got a feeling some of you will probably get shot and you know, there's probably an idea mm. that'll blow up some of you guys. Yep. Like, you can't sell it like that. No, especially when you care about those people. Yeah. Um, I found those decisions were the hardest and that's probably when I had to act a bit more because I really care about them and care about their families. Mm. And, you know, yeah. we've, we've been talking clearly, you know, the military, physical courage sort of stuff, mm. but it's exactly the same. We work with companies that go through redundancy rounds. Yeah. In fact, one of our close friends and a company we're working with now is doing exactly that. And, you know, talking with this guy, you know, he's got to make decisions yeah. that end people's livelihoods in the short term. Yeah. You know, it's exactly that same yeah. sort of pressure um, that is a factor of leadership. You've got to make that decision for the organisation, the wider mission that's going to have personal impact. Yeah. Mm. There's that, you know, on the managing up, I've been told to do it, I don't like the decision. There's that whole principle of of disagree, then commit. Yeah. The learned insubordination or that, that constructive commentary that you're fighting back on. Mm. How is the acting bit and the authenticity, how do those two bedfellows reside neatly and happily when you hate the decision, even though you've represented the fact that you hate it to your boss? Yeah, I guess I had to deal with that a few years ago and I really disagreed with the decision and still to this day disagree with the decision. But I also know my job was to follow what the organisation told me to do. Mm. And so, yes, I have to act... I have to put my personal disgruntled um, message aside because that was my personal thought, not the mm-hmm. organisation's thought. And that's a hard one for leaders, but if you believe in the organisation, then you should be able to, to put that aside and not make it personal. So perhaps to the consequence, um, you say words to the effect of, here's the decision, I don't agree with it, but we've been oh. told to do it. What's the consequence? <laughs> you can't white ant it yeah, like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think you've got it. And I, I think we're probably experienced variations of yeah. the same sort of thing. Um, and, yeah, I, I had those same ones, and I think I probably did that on occasion. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not my decision, it's the bot. You know, and that's that's not good leadership. That, that's terrible. Well, maybe we'll come back to... But, but sorry, to answer mm. your question, I, I think a better way is to emphasise, well, why am I agreeing with this? So, And clearly, to, to clarify, this is not 
illegal. This is not the Nuremberg defence. I was just yeah. following orders. You know, if, if it's illegal, immoral, whatever, you, you've got an absolute obligation as a leader and an individual to yeah, not definitely. do that. Yeah. Mm. And we saw a great example. I think Pete Timley is a really good example of that, where he had a fundamental disagreement with some of defence policy um, and made a, a, a very vocal and I thought very um, individually courageous stance there. So yeah. that that aside, if, if it's not illegal or moral, but just something you disagree with, yeah. mm. I think you do need to look for, well, if I still believe in this organisation, if I still believe in the principles by which it runs, um, then that's what I'm going to emphasise in terms of selling that because that's still authentic. Yeah. You know, I don't agree with this particular decision, but I do agree with the fact that a volunteer army, that there is a hierarchy and that this decision-making framework needs to, to be respected. And so yeah. people don't have to Google Pete Tinley. He was the ops lead in the SAS um, 2002 into 2003. He was the lead planner for the invasion of Iraq and fundamentally disagreed with it. He said mm-hmm. there was no evidence, albeit he came back and represented to the unit the plan mm-hmm. that was subsequently executed. And and Pete's been very public about, yeah. about that, um, now a politician in the state of Western Australia. Hmm. Well, let's circle back on a couple of things. You know, the leadership likership debate, ultimately we'll get into the unit that you served in and, and actually led jazz. But a lot of the units, including the SAS regiment, they're very flat, they're very inclusive. It doesn't have what people would th- think about this traditional hierarchical structure of you get told this, you get you tell someone else mm-hmm. to do it. It is a bit more insubordinate than that. So let's maybe circle back on that. Have you been to India? 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 Well, you better get some of it, India. Back to the main thread of the story, which is we don't go to Broadway. Yeah. Jazz goes to <laughs> Army. So you, you said, and, and I, I didn't get a clear answer, you evaded the question about when did the nerd mm. <laughs> sort of <laughs> thing start. But when, when did you when did you get bitten by the stem bug? Like you, you, this is a big part of you yeah. now. Like when did that start? So all through high school. Like yep. I was the kid that studied physics and high-level maths and chemistry they were the things I loved. In my physics class, it was me and one other girl. Um, in my maths class, it was the same two of us. Um, chemistry, a few more girls in the class. But I'd always loved science. I just mm. loved that it taught me how the world works, how um, you can describe everything through physics. Mm. And my partner and I argue about this all the time because he thinks he's studying chemical engineering and he thinks everything's chemistry. I'm like, no, 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 everything's physics. Like, oh, gee, I was hoping you were saying he's a fundamentalist, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's a flat earther. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's really cool. And very interesting in terms of, you know, I've got a, a teenage daughter at the moment who loves science yeah. and it's not, she's not an outlier, which is cool. It's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome that young girls aren't intimidated by science because mm. I think for so long... Science has promoted itself as being the really theoretical, classic 
difficult science mm. where there's so much M- men's more. Work. Yeah, men's work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go not, stand not at a whiteboard. Right? Oh, I'm, I'm incredibly <laughs> intimidated by science. <laughs> Stayed as far away from that as I possibly could. No, exactly. But you guys talk about science a fair bit when you talk about resilience. You talk about neurochemistry. You talk about how hormones affect things. Like all of this is science. Well, and, and my pet favourite when it comes to leadership is complexity theory. You know, this yeah. complex adaptive system science, like it is just such a beautiful theoretical lens through which to look at people problems. Yeah. 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 Um, so, yeah, bit of a scientist. <laughs> <No. Yeah. laughs> Group of Cle- scientists experimenting. Not. No, hopeless. <laughs> but, um, but, but you certainly are. So you, you got bitten by the bug yeah. in sort of high school, yeah. kind of not that common as a, as a female, as a girl. Yeah. What then? You, you made the decision to pivot away from what would have clearly been a Oscar-winning sort of <laughs> theatre uh, uh, acting career. Yeah, short-stocky <laughs> Aussie actor. That's just what the world needs. <laughs> um, so... At the time, I got my letter uh, into the Australian Defence Force Academy and I was like, you know what, this is my opportunity to leave home Mm. and I can start being an adult and see what the world is like. And I was getting paid to do it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. probably maybe just answered the question, yeah. why add for a not University of Queensland? Yeah, Defence Force no hex debt. Yeah. <laughs> had you had a military exposure along the way? So not directly, although my family history has a lot of military service. So my grandfather served in the Finnish military. And as I found out when I went back to Finland a few years ago, he was in bomb disposal, which is some Ooh, of the training I've done, which is pretty cool. cool. What, what sort of period? Was that the kind of Soviet 1939? That was around that era and World War Two. So, yeah, yeah right. so That's... some really heavy, heavy stuff. Have you heard of the term, or did he uh, tell you the term Sisu? Oh, Sisu, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sisukas. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, uh, Sisukas <coughs> Nainen. Okay. Yeah. Tell us your, your sort of experience and exposure from your, your grandfather. Uh, so it is really about inner strength and and resilience mm-hmm. against everything life throws at you. Yeah. And not whinging about it, just putting that pack on and keep walking and you can get through that. It's it's grit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is real grit and uh, a very finished term. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I find it. Beautiful. And we, we sort of quoted it in the book, Mikko Salo, the CrossFitter, um, makes this wonderful quote. You know, he finishes this brutal CrossFit workout in, in the ga- in the CrossFit Games and everyone else is gasping, lying on their back and yeah. he, he won it and he's sort of still on his feet. The interviewer said, you know, why, why aren't you on, the back, on your back? You know, you surely take a rest. It's over. And he said, no, no, I've, I've noticed when an animal gives up, it lies on its back in the snow, it's it's given up, it's dead, I will never do that. And, yep. and then he talks about season. It's yeah. just so beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's a great term. Mm. Okay, yeah. so so a bit of military background in did you say on both sides? On both sides. So yeah. my dad's side of the family, um, his brother was a, a pilot in Egypt who was unfortunately shot down and killed and that's that's I think one of the catalysts for my dad leaving Egypt at the time. Yeah. Um, and so I'd grown up hearing lots of military stories. Mm-hmm. What, what were um, the circumstances around him being shot down? Do you know the oh, look, how my it memory's not great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I should ask my dad again what the story is, but it was... What time frame? Uh, so it would have been around the 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Middle East is always mm-hmm. a bit of conflict, mm-hmm. right, unfortunately. Um Yes, there's always been military mm. blood in my family. Yeah, yeah. And so then myself and my brother both joined up. Yep. Yes. Why the army? 
and uh, not the Navy or the Air Force? So I actually don't know. Um, I don't know what it was about recruiting that enticed me to get into Army. Um, I thought I was going to be a helicopter pilot because it meant I could do science all the time and fly helicopters, but uh, unfortunately, medically, I wasn't able to. But, yeah, Army just, I guess, was more enticing than Navy and Air Force at the time. And I know that those tables have turned now and there's a lot more young women joining Navy and Air Force because mm-hmm. it's a lot more enticing and less joining Army. But mm. but at the time, Army had, was great. Gave lots of cool options. So the nerdy rugby player scientist turns <laughs> their, <laughs> actor, <laughs> turns their, turns their back fighter. on Broadway, <laughs> yeah. big future in Broadway to, to go to the Australian <laughs> Defence Force Academy. What did yeah. you study and, and how was that experience? Studied science. So I did... Unsurprising. Uh, yeah, <laughs> arts yeah. history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So those art history... Guys and girls frustrated me when they were You're off welcome. drinking. And, You're I was yeah. <laughs> and I was trying to do an experiment. Um, yeah, so I studied physics chemistry, but really focused in on nuclear science and explosive chemistry, so the cool parts of science mm-hmm. where you get to destroy things. Yep. Uh, yeah, and, and then that, like, I've had that bug since I've... And graduated with a Bachelor of, bachelor of science. science. How many times yeah. does she need to... Well, no, is there an open brackets <laughs> after that? Because uh, so there's a nuclear part chemistry. to well, the where nuclear, you ended up. Yeah, the nuclear part came a bit later on. So I, I uh, was assigned to combat engineers and there's a whole backstory there about women not being allowed to be combat engineers if they weren't technical civil engineers and I was a bit of an anomaly. But um, I was heavily involved in counter chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear and explosive threats and that kept me excited by nuclear and nuclear developments worldwide. And so it was about 10 years ago now, um, I was interested in climate change and wanted to understand why Australia wasn't talking about nuclear power. Energy, yeah. And so went and studied nuclear engineering um, to figure out all the science behind it to then be able to pose questions to other Aussies like, why don't we have nuclear power? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the nuclear event came in yeah okay so another thing to maybe shop, circle right? back to um, <laughs> let's talk about your military career mm. highlights highlights uh, there are some pretty rat bag stories of mine all over the place I got to travel the world like mm-hmm. I've seen some amazing places come on rattle it off uh, give us the geography so I presented at a futures conference in Finland which was amazing. Wow, that's cool. In the middle of summer where the sun didn't go down, also amazing, mm-hmm. makes day drinking a real thing. <laughs> uh, presented in the Netherlands, um, spent a bit of time in the UK, the US and Canada. Uh, Canada in the middle of winter, don't recommend to any Aussie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you need Sisu for that. Yep. Um, <laughs> then uh, Papua New Guinea, which is a country I'll always hold close to my heart. Yeah. It's just the people are phenomenal. And then I did a tour through Afghanistan, spent a bit of time in Dubai and Kuwait, and I think that covers mm. most of my travel. Box set of things. Yeah. If you've made it this far, congratulations. We're as surprised as you are. Stick around because it could get better, but don't quote me on that. You can find out more about the topics of resilience, stress, and how to optimise your life in the Resilience Shield reach out via the website at www.resilienceshield.com or do yourself a favour and just buy a copy of the book.
been home since 1973 Since he was 17 What about the general? You mentioned at the time uh, sort of difficult or there were barriers to entries for females in combat roles. Combat engineers was one of the few exceptions. Yeah. Of, of course yeah. now for, for people's awareness all combat roles are open to to all genders. Yeah. Um, so we, we're sort of no longer in that case but it, it yeah. was quite rare and combat engineers was this kind of grey area where as you said tech qualified females could go into certain roles. Yeah. You weren't tech qualified as yep. a civil engineer. Can you tell us about how you were able to broker that entry and also what did you find in terms of the environment as a, as a young female officer? Yeah, so I was really lucky. I had some great advocates early in my career. Mm-hmm. So um, because I was not technically qualified as a civil engineer, I was sent to one topographical survey squadron um, where they produce maps. I've never studied geography in my life. It was really hard. Oh, God, <laughs> here's where Ben tells us what a map is. <laughs> a two-dimensional representation of the portions of the Earth's surface. I don't know why that sticks in my head. <laughs> I can't navigate That's the first lesson, Navigation 101, isn't yeah, it? I think that's what got me through every nav course because I, I wasn't good at actually finding my way between two points. So I could read a map, but I couldn't produce a map and, like, be expected to help facilitate production of maps. So I had some really great warrant officers and sergeants who kept me on the straight and narrow there, but that wasn't where my passion in army was. I wanted to get into combat engineering. And so my career advisor at the time is a great guy and I'm still uh, in contact with him a fair bit. He put me down and posted me to what was the incident response regiment at the time. And from that point on, I continued having leaders that saw what I could do and just put my name forward um, and, yeah. For, for those that have never heard of the Incident Response Regiment, can you describe what their role is in the military? Yeah, so um, it was formed at the back end, oh, formed for the Sydney Olympic Games mm-hmm. in 2000 and its role was to uh, protect uh, and find threats that were chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear or explosive. It mm. would do high-risk search uh, it would be able to respond and dispose of any of those threats if mm. need be. It's evolved now. I was going to say yeah. large-scale decontamination Yeah, as well. large-scale it, decontamination. So including of yep. sweaty SAS soldiers <laughs> <laughs> getting hosed yep, down. Getting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Strip off. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember fondly. But, you know, the idea and, and sort of leading up to the Olympics, you know, there had been, what was it, the sarin uh, gas attacks in the Tokyo Underground, you know, yeah. this idea that, God, what if that happened at... Sydney Olympic Stadium, yep. you know, we've got 60,000 people there potentially exposed to a really nasty thing. Yep. Um, how do we clean them? How do we clean them quickly and safely and not spread contamination across the country, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially as a self-contained island, like, it could be catastrophic to us. Mm. Yeah. IRR grows yep. and it changes from being an engineer unit to a special ops unit. Can you talk about how that movement went organisationally and culturally? How, how did the change, um, how, how was it from the inside? Yeah, so it was uh, in the um, start of Afghan era and the back end of the Iraq era, special operations didn't have a dedicated engineer capability to help them defeat some of the threats, especially the increasing IED threat mm-hmm. as terrorist organisations were getting smarter in the IEDs they were producing, they were being a bit cheeky. Uh, and so IRR evolves into the Special Operations Engineer Regiment, which grows its skills more from domestic 
response capabilities against threats to more of a forward-leaning combat effect to support special operations. So it could do things you would expect a regular combat engineer regiment to do, and I'll put a caveat here, except for bridge building and all the big, heavy, Mm. awesome things combat engineers do, to be faster, lighter, manoeuvrable, so it could actually support special operations doing its job allowing them to get to target safely and coming back out safely. Mm. And and agile, not only in terms of that deployability, but also in terms of the thinking. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the most fascinating case studies of competitive evolution was that whole IED track through Afghanistan and Iraq and the information coming from both theatres. And, for example, you know, there'd be things like, um, uh, you know, pressure plate IEDs or remote-controlled IEDs that then, you know, the... Our Western coalition forces would develop techniques to overcome those, and so yep. they'd go to things like pass- passive infrared, like yep. your, your doorbell openers. And then, you know, I remember at one stage, you, the Americans in particular were putting sort of heat sources on the end of a stick to trigger these things in front yep. of the vehicle, and that was working for a while. And then, yeah. of course, the bad guys would offset, you know, so it would aim off and come back. And then, you know, they were up armoring the sides, so they were getting explosively formed projectiles. It was this really interesting you know, Darwinian sort of evolution. Yeah, and really, really cheeky, some of it, like getting to the point where they had no metal content. Yeah. And how do you find something that has no metal when all you've got are metal detectors yeah. or your feet? Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it was a, a fascinating evolution and really trying to one-up one another. Yeah. <laughs> and and again, we're saying this all very much from a, a distant academic yeah. perspective at that time. I mean, the, this is incredibly... Um, difficult, dangerous sort of work. I, Definitely. I, I viscerally remember going out on some of these missions and whenever it would get a bit sketchy, it would be like, okay, engineers, you go and <laughs> tread on this sort of dodgy ground first. I mean, yeah, it's we're a weird stuff. bunch. Yeah. Very weird. But um, what really attracted me to that unit is all the people think a bit differently and love challenging scientific thought. The soldiers are super smart and we talk about scientific principles and how can you overcome them as an engineer and if you were an adversary how would you do it to try and get us and that part i found really fascinating yeah, yeah. not dissimilar to an infantry <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. we challenge each other to how would you throw yourself on the concertina wire <laughs> to al- enable your mates to run over your back and not yeah i get- never really got that right <laughs> Now to the debrief. We relentlessly pursue excellence and would love your insights and feedback. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, let us know. You can get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Until next time, we wish you luck in filling your unforgiving 60s with some quality distance run. I went over to the externals asking.